What must I do to be saved? It would be very cool if uh, you were sitting in this new church plant and somebody came in from the street, maybe they're visiting Grants Pass and they sat beside you and they asked you this question. So you Christians gather uh, to worship God, okay? Jesus, what must I do to be saved? I want you to think through what you would say to them. And this is going to be, uh, this is going to occur in my message. So think about that and let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for this day to gather in your name. May the preaching of your word bless you. May you draw your people together. May we be useful for your kingdom work. I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So you thought about what you might say in one sentence, if possible, to make it brief. And I recommend if you have a good answer, practice that and then use it. And I'm going to ask this question again. Uh, Sam has started the tradition of circle tables. I call it turn and talk, where you get a chance to process what the teacher is bringing to you. So uh, you will be asked this question a little bit later. So if you have a great answer, you're going to be able to share that with someone. But we've been in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, ascended unto heaven, and he commissioned the witnesses of his resurrection and his ministry to go throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth with this gospel message, this transformative gospel message. And so this is a map. I happen to love maps. You're going to see a lot of pictures. I'm the slide guy. And this is a map. And we can see the beginning point of Antioch. So this is like the, uh, I think Sam has called it the flagship. This is where Christians were first called Christians. And this is going to be the sending point for the ministry out into Galatia, Lycia, Cilicia, and then eventually on over into Rome and Athens. This is going to, this is uh, the end of the first missionary journey. They've returned back to Antioch. And Paul most recently has been stoned, left for dead. It is very interesting to me. Let's see if I can even point. Okay. So he gets stoned in Lystra, goes to Derby, and then goes back through the same city. I want you to just think about that. So when he was in Lystra, if you recall, they believed he was a god. They called him Hermes. He had the power to heal. This guy must be a messenger from the gods. And they wanted to make sacrifices to him. He said, no, 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 no. So this same guy carried out of the city. Interesting how they would turn on him. You're a god one moment, you're a jerk the next moment, needs to be executed. So this guy is carried out of the city, revives, and then he goes back to the same city preaching. Imagine what the people of Lystra thought about this man. They once thought he was a god, now he's an outlaw and he's been executed. We killed him, he's alive again. There's something about these Christians. Their signs and wonders and their miraculous works authenticate this gospel message. What is it with these guys? So I want you to get the, the, the sense of the awe. They're so excited about how the Holy Spirit is moving through them as they move through this region carrying this new, the way, the way of Jesus. So if uh, you'll turn in your Bibles, let's, let's go back slightly to Acts 14. And in 27, I'm preaching from the ESV. Much of the text is on the screen just so that I can go faster. But when you see a little Bible icon up there, that means you can turn your in your Bibles to that point. And then you can correct me if I make a mistake. You can say, well, there's a text and you said something wrong. That's fine. It says that they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They are super stoked. They're talking. They're, they're back at, at the, the flagship church and they're talking about what God is doing to spread his message in this way. And then we move on from that excitement 
into Acts 15. Now, Acts 15 was assigned to me, and when you're assigned a passage, you have to look through it and read through it, and, okay, what theme do I see most prominent? And so, uh, I see legalism here. So this is going to be a very encouraging, edifying message on legalism in the church. <laughs> we read this, 15.1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And you're thinking, when I ask you to consider this, someone asked you, what must I do to be saved? Did circumcision even come up as a requirement? Not usually. We are all Gentiles. I'm, I'm assuming that in the audience we're all probably ethnic Gentiles. We're not uh, of the Jewish nation, of the Jewish race. And so uh, circumcision, what, what's up with that? I mean, many of us may have been circumcised out of some kind of a custom or a tradition, but this is not a, a, a ceremonial attachment to the nation of Israel for identification. So it doesn't naturally come up. So we have some men, I want you to just point out in the text, some men came down from Judea. Who are these men? Now, they're coming down from the capital where the temple is, of Judaism. They're coming down where Jesus was crucified. They're coming down from the, the birthplace of the church. Do they have authority? It just says some men. They're coming down from Judea. And they were teaching the brothers. Now, the brothers refers to the Christians in Antioch. And they were teaching them. They're not just on the street calling out a different message. They seem to be sitting down maybe going through the scriptures, and at this time the scriptures would have been the Old Testament, primarily the Torah, could have been the prophets, and they're teaching them this, this requirement, and it started to upset people. So I want to define my terms. Legalism, if you go to theopedia.com, legalism in Christianity is a term referring to an improper fixation, that's my underline, it's not from Theopedia. Improper fixation on law or codes of conduct for a person to merit or obtain salvation, blessing from God, or fellowship with God with an attendant misunderstanding of the grace of God. So grace is always important in gospel preaching, but we're going to be looking at this claim that you must do these things. These are, we call this works righteousness. You must do this in order to be saved. And uh, it's a misunderstanding of grace. I try to characterize it this way. Sometimes people who are legalists, they have this improper fixation with codes and laws, are quick to go to absolutist kinds of language. You must do this, or you must not do this. They're the musties, or the must nazis. <laughs> and sometimes, it, it, you, you can't really, it, it kind of blends right between the two. Rarely will you uh, hear them talking about the liberty and freedom of Christ, but uh, because we are guided by the Spirit who indwells us, so they're looking to the rule book. And we need to govern our lives by these rules, and if it's not in the rule, let me just ask this question. Anyone heard of the regulated principle? No. Okay, I'm not, not going to preach about that. But sometimes we get real serious about the rules that govern our behavior. And these people, these some men that came down from Judea, are saying we need to go to the Torah, and we need to apply these requirements to you new Christians. There was once a uh, highway patrolman. Four little ladies were driving very slow along the highway. He pulls them over. He says, ma'am, there's something wrong with your car. The little lady says, no, my car's working just fine. He says, well, you're under 20 miles an hour and the speed limit's 55. She says, oh, dearie me. How silly. The officer notices that the other ladies look totally shocked. Is everything all right? 
and uh, they were driving on Highway 19. Officer says, everything all right? The lady in the passenger seat says, we just left Highway 210. <laughs> so sometimes the things that are posted as law can be misinterpreted. You gotta read them right. And sometimes the law that is clear in the Old Testament is for its purpose that is no longer relevant for the New Testament. Sometimes it can be silly, but sometimes it can be seriously misapplied. That's why I tell people in a joke. Probably got it wrong. <laughs> when I speak of the law, I'm going to bring the highest reverence to it. So that in the end, I'm not one of those guys that comes down from Household of Faith Church or some other place and brings you a false teaching. I'm accountable to you. Sam did ask me to teach, by the way. You know that. <laughs> but when I talk about the law, I want you to know that I have the highest reverence like the psalmist. This is Psalm 19. Why don't you turn there in your Bible so you can see this, because I'm just taking a chunk out of it. It talks about the creation revelation, which is so marvelous. And then it talks about the revelation of God's law, which is an expression of God's grace. The fact that he would give of himself his attributes and the things that are important to him, this is an expression of grace. I want you to see the law as an extension and an expression of grace. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And it goes on and on. And the psalmist asks, you know, the, the Lord to bless the meditation of his heart and his mouth. We often think of the law as the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. But the law is much bigger. So when the Jews would think about the law, so when they say, you need to do this, you need to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they're talking about the Mosaic law, which is really embodied in the entirety of the Torah, the five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But we often think of the law as just the moral commandments. We, we Gentiles don't often think of the law as the ceremonial requirements of the law. I hope to unpack that. So here we go. We got the, a nice, another little map. So Antioch would be up there. And they've traveled down through. Oh, let's go ahead and read the text. And now I'll explain it. Let's get beyond verse number one. Two through 35. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Just pause there. Do you notice that? Being sent on their way by the church. In other words, they were authorized. The church knows that these people are going on from that. That's very important. Verse number four. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Once again, we see people who are, have credibility in the realm of theology. The apostles who had been with, G with Jesus and knew his teaching. And the elders. And these would be people appointed by the apostles to serve in the church. The apostles and elders were there. And they declared all that God had done with them, Paul and Barnabas, to the elders. This is probably the second journey that Paul has made to Jerusalem. As you know, Paul left Jerusalem as a Pharisee, like the 
the, the agent of persecution for the Christians, and he's converted. Now he becomes like a double agent. He's the worst enemy of the Judaizers because he knows their game. He's been one of them, and now he's on the side of the Christians. But he's very well-versed in the law. So Paul and Barnabas are back in Jerusalem to talk to the converted Jewish Christians, the apostles and the elders. Number five. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. I'm going to cycle back through some of these texts to bring some things out. There are some very curious things here. Some believers who are from the Pharisee party. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we... We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Verse 12, And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul, and they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, here's the third testimony. we got Peter standing up there giving his testimony. Barnabas and Paul tag-teaming it. And now we have James, who's the head of the church in Jerusalem now. Standing up, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, he's referring back to Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. From them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now he's going to cite, he's going to quote the prophet Amos. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may see the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. There are other Old Testament prophets and texts he could have cited, but he chose Amos. But here, the point is, he's talking about the Old Testament confirms that the Gentiles are going to be brought in. They're going to be people called by the Lord. 19. Therefore my judgment, James still speaking, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexually, sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. It's a long passage I've been asked to preach it, so we're going we're to make it up at least through to 35. Can you hang in there? So we've got the Jerusalem Council. We've got this debate issue. The elders, everyone's gathered. There's, there's a lot of buzz and hubbub here. Like, what are we going to do about this? And, you know, what does the Bible say about this? And it's the Holy Spirit here guiding us. And so these believers get together. Verse 22, they're going to make a decision. They're going to hear the evidence. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them. And send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now the men that showed up, first of all, did not have this blessing. There was not a big Bible study and all the, the, the ruling, reigning elders and apostles said, yes, you got our blessing and go. And 
teach this. No, no, this is very different. Now they're going to deputize Barnab Paul and Barnabas, go back and teach properly. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and elders, to the brothers, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, and Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Now right there, it is so awesome. Brothers from one place to another. I went on a mission trip to the Philippines, and I remember being stuck out on a, I went over there with a Christian rock band to play music on the islands, and a Tagalog-speaking evangelist would speak. We played, we Americans would play the music, islanders would come, and then there would be an evangelist to give the message in their language. And they, many of the people on the boat, we were on this boat to get to the islands, and they spoke English, and they knew some of the Christian praise songs. And I just marveled at the time, being over there in the Philippine Sea in a boat, Singing the same songs. Um, Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. In English, with, in, with foreigners. We are brothers. The Lord has a way of crossing ethnic boundaries to unite us in worship. And so the excitement here is that these people are going out, spreading to the West, kind of like dandelion seeds. The gospel is just being blown across the Mediterranean. And everywhere it finds root, the Holy Germinated by the Holy Spirit, we got people of faith, and they recognize each other. So the church is going, it's, it's going nuts, it's going crazy, it's awesome. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you, unnamed still, with words unsettling to your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you of the same things by word of mouth. 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Very important. The church is fueled by the Spirit of God and the people of God. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. That is a remarkably short list, by the way, that I'll unpack later. It's, it's kind of mind-boggling. Why that and why only that? Going on, we're going to make it to 35. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, having gathered the congregation together. They delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Okay, I have to do this. 36 through 41, the next 15, is really about a dispute in ministry. And Sam has mentioned it a couple times already. He said, you don't have to preach that. If you don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to preach that. But basically, the, the, the happy end of the story is that when John Mark leaves to go back to Jerusalem for whatever reason, later, and, and there's a dispute, and Barnabas and Paul split up. It's going to be not Paul and Silas in Philippi. You know, it's a downer when people don't get along. But it was a downer when persecution sent the Christians running out of Judea into Samaria and the ends of the world to spread the gospel. And so this is going to be reconciled. Paul will later on love and trust John Mark. 
and they will do ministry together later. But for now, you've got to remember that Scripture, this is a progressive revelation of Scripture. When people refer to the Word of God in Scripture at this time in Acts, it's the Old Testament. Scripture is being written. The epistles have not come into existence yet. There's no Romans, there's no Galatians, there's no letter to the Colossians or the Corinthians. And so you have to just keep that in mind. Um, so I'm not going to talk about the last part, but I'd like to go back through now and unpack this issue of legalism. Have you noticed that when they're in Jerusalem, the same group of people shows up? But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and... <laughs> And anytime it's the gospel plus something, it's usually a corruption of the gospel. They're taking something away or they're adding something. So it's curious to me right here, okay, they're called believers, but they belong to the party of the Pharisees. How can that be? How did Jesus feel about the Pharisees? These, this was the woe to party. The woe to. Woe to you, hypocrites, blind guides. You are like tombs with full of immense dead bones inside. You are the blind leading the blind. How can there even be a Pharisee party of Christians? It means that God can save whom he wants. He can choose for, for among his 12 disciples a betrayer who will go to the place foreordained for him, which is eternal hell. One of the insiders of Christ's ministry, he chose. It's called election. Not, not election unto salvation, but he was chose to serve a purpose. It's pretty fascinating. God can choose a tax collector, typically used as the non-example for righteousness. Choose one and convert him. Levi becomes Matthew. Jesus in the is in the business of transforming unusual material, broken material. Even the Pharisees. Hallelujah to that. So yes, there's a Pharisee party. The story's not over. Sometimes when you redeem people who have lots of baggage, the baggage keeps unpacking itself through your ministry. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. I was kind of fascinated. The first group seems to say circumcision according to the custom of Moses, like one item. These guys, the Pharisees, so meticulous in their observance of the law that if they had any herbs in the cabinet, they would go through it a tenth of the dill of the cumin, right? They'd be tithing meticulously everything they had because I observed the law, the law of the tithe. They, would, they were hypocrites. They would do this often in public, but very meticulous about the law. And so it seems like we have these groups of people in the church, in Jerusalem, and in Antioch. The Gentile converts are ignorant of the law, and that would be me. I was raised an atheist, never baptized, Every once in a while, my parents would send me off to vacation Bible school, you know, because it's fun for kids. But no, no Christian upbringing. Uh, Dad was a biology teacher and an atheist. So my background, I don't know anything about the law. I mean, we would pray at the table, God is great, God is good, let us think before our food. That kind of thing, that kind of religion. Nominalism, if anything. Grandma was a Christian. Uh, a lot of people in those days weren't strong atheists. But uh, that's my background. I don't, I'm not aware of the law. So that would be a group, like if I can compare myself to the Gentiles at that time, they're pantheists. They might worship Zeus and Apollo, Artemis, and those, and they, they may have religious traditions, but it's not Yahweh. It's not the Jew, Jewish law. And then you have the Jewish con converts that I'm just going to hear call teachable. 
they understand that Jesus ministered to Jews, first the Jew, then the Gentile. And they understand that things have changed. The covenant changed with the Messiah arriving. And there are can be a couple of confusions. Did the Messiah come to initiate an earthly kingdom that was everlasting and it would boot out the Romans? Or did the Messiah come to conquer sin and death, bigger enemies, more eternal in nature? And some people, all right, we're going to go with the, we're going to go with the eternal kingdom version rather than the, the, uh, the military conquest and dominance of Israel as a, an earthly nation. So they were very, they, we'll call them teachable. And then you have the Pharisees, they are just so meticulous in their beliefs, they can't really be moved from this idea of, we, we have these attachments, God said it, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, if it's in the word, I'm going to do it, and you must do it too. They're the musties and the must-nazis. And sometimes, it's not just an adherence to the law, the Pharisees were infamous for not just taking the law, but for going beyond the law. The Pharisees were so meticulous and their idea that we, want, we don't want to transgress against the law, that they created hedges around the law. Additional requirements, so that you don't even get close to violating the law. And they were inflexible. And I have an illustration that may work for you. Here I am, a new Christian. Art and I moved down to Stockton, California. We <clears throat> joined a large Baptist church. I like to sing. So as soon as people find out you sing, you ought to join the choir. Big, huge choir. Got an orchestra, a choir. And so I get to know the, uh, the worship pastor. And I'm a little bit shocked. The worship pastor drinks alcohol in moderation. Now remember, I'm new to the faith. I have no Baptist historical tradition. Don't know anything about Baptist doctrine. He drinks. So uh, I have this need. We wanted to buy our first house, and we were going to get an FHA loan. And they weren't going to approve the loan unless the house had a new roof. What are we going to do? So the seller, well, if you replace the roof, it'll get approved by the FHA appraiser. And so uh, we make this need known to the choir. And so a bunch of the brothers from the choir can help me roof my house. Stockton, California, in August. 103 degrees it was. But, so I want to supply some refreshments for the brothers. And I know that the worship pastor that I work with doesn't mind a cold beer on a hot day. So I include some bottles of beer in the cooler for all these guys, soda pop and beer. And another brother who ended up being my neighbor opens up that cooler, this Baptist brother. And he looks in there and it's like devil's waving back at him. What do you have in your cooler? And it's like I had transgressed this law that I didn't know about. It was amazing. And we, we had a great relationship. He didn't try to excommunicate me from his church. We went on to have discussions about Christmas trees or no Christmas tree. So he was not a legalist because he never said that I would not be saved if I served alcohol or drank alcohol. But sometimes in legalism, you just kind of slide there, don't you? There's always the potential it may not be required, but how can you call yourself a Christian if or when? And it really starts drifting into the camp of legalism. Well, why do you say that? And then uh, we're, we're going to look at this situation. How do you settle issues of law and grace? Good Bible study with credible people adjudicate. I hope that was a helpful illustration. Not to cause anybody to stumble, I have since learned that sometimes the Baptist conference has like an absolute abstinence position. 
And uh, most churches accommodate that by serving juice instead of wine. Most churches in America. Different topic. When we think of the law, I want you to try to get into the mindset a little bit. A little bit of sympathy for the Pharisees for a moment. Because if we're going to ultimately conclude that they're not right, let's go where they're at and how they think. So when the Pharisees think of the law, we really have three divisions of the law. Sam has talked about the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, don't kill, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, those are universal. When people refer to the law of God, this is the character of God. God is holy and God wants to bless his people with good moral behavior that keeps them in fellowship with him and with each other. Amen. Right on to the moral law. Hallelujah. The civil law is a little bit more nuanced because it's not, I don't have a goat or a, a bull that's going to bore someone else, but the civil law would deal with contractual issues, animal issues, slave issues, uh, restitution issues. And so they're very practical. The bottom line is fairness. Don't have unequal weights and measures. And don't, if you find somebody's property, it's not yours to keep, return it to the owner. Those kinds of things. That's the civil law. And it's just all over the place in both Exodus and uh, Leviticus. And then we have the ceremonial law. And that's where I want to point the attention to. The ceremonial law is where, oops. Ceremonial law is where the Pharisees live. I want you to have respect for this. The God of the universe chose a person out of a pagan culture, Abraham. He gave him a promised son, Isaac. And then Isaac had a couple sons, and one of those was the chosen son to carry the, the name Israel. And then there are 12 tribes of Israel. And you notice that the priest has got 12 stones on his head each representing one of those tribes. God is very meticulous about his old covenant. That he would say, he would, he would make provision for people to come into his holiness. God is so holy that at first on the mountain, nobody could go into his own. You gotta be clean, you gotta stay away. Only Moses can come up. And I'm gonna reveal the law to you, but I am holy. And he's teaching, try to imagine Houston, Texas. When we look at the the, the, the data on the size of the Israelites that went out of Egypt. Houston, Texas. Can you imagine taking Houston, Texas? Everybody were going out for a worship service in the wilderness, bringing livestock with you. They're all out there, and God reveals himself on a mountain. Stay with me. And he reveals himself. It is awesome. Smoke and fire, and only the one man can come up. God himself writes on the tablets. Moses makes chisel them, and God writes them. He writes on the tablets. That's pretty particular. These are requirements. God gives his law. All of these things come through the mouth of Moses from God, including the ceremonial details. The, since I like to build furniture, I'm an, I have a little bit of an art background. It fascinates me. God gave the measurements of the furniture, the materials, and he put his spirit in the craftsman to make all this stuff. Very particular. So down at the bottom here, a couple notes to keep me on track. Things that were important to keep the ceremonial law. If you want to be right with this holy God, you've got to be part of his chosen people. You come from, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you've got to have a tribe. You're attached to a tribe, or you can be a proselyte and God fear. There are ways to come in, very specific ways. God has provided a way for sinful man to approach him. He's the holy of holies of holies. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And so this tabernacle system was instituted with some boundaries. 
and you've got the, the mercy seat in there, you've got a ceremonial washing basin, you've got the, act, the altar of sacrifice, and you've got all kinds of other furniture. The priest had to go through purification rites. He had to be from the son of Aaron, from the tribe of Levi. On and on it goes. He cannot be blemished. He's got to be unblemished. He's got to be washed. And then he goes in and makes atonement for the other people. This is how people access the holy God. Super ceremonial. They have to have their sacrifices. They have to bring offerings. They need to make required pil pilgrimages. They have to go to the festivals. There are parties for the Lord, but they are required. There are weekly Sabbaths. And if you violate the Sabbath, it was capital punishment. Probably heard the story of a man out gathering sticks for his fire on the Sabbath. What are we going to do with this guy? This guy has violated all the particular rules of Yahweh. And so the judge is met at that time. He's got to be executed. It's capital punishment. We had a couple sons of Aaron go into the temple at the wrong time. And they tried to offer fire incense. God killed them. Serious business. Try to get into the mind of a Pharisee. Wait a minute. God is holy. You do not, you do not transgress Yahweh because he is holy. We must have a priest intercede for us, and it's got to be on his terms. That's where they live, and circumcision fits into that category. I feel like I just lost. It's okay, we can still hear. Alright, you can hear me, but it won't be recorded. <laughs> Praise the Lord, huh? No, no recorded audio witness. Um, so circumcision fits into this whole system. Alright. They say that pictures worth a thousand words. In this case, the thousand words is better than any picture on circumcision. So I'm going to tell you about it. Where does it come from? What is it? It would be, it would be sick and wrong for me to say, brothers, new teaching, all of the guys have been circumcised. Oh, you're not already circumcised? Okay, we've got a little clinic in the back room. It would be sick and wrong. What is circumcision and where did it come from? Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. If you need to do anything, go throw it. Um, and I'll shop. Okay. No, it's just... I just need new tape. That's all. Okay. <laughs> Every male... Where was I? Covenant you shall keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Get into the mind of a Pharisee. You gotta do this. You have got to do this. Hey, yeah, we believe that the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, and he's the continuation of the Judaic law. But you still gotta do this because it's an everlasting covenant. Right? So let's have a little sympathy for them. We would need to persuade such people, but there's a better covenant. This new covenant replaces the old covenant, and it's a better covenant. I'll unpack that in just a moment. Let's go to the argument. So here's what Peter does. Now, Peter, Peter's not hung up on circumcision. For those of you who have read the scriptures, apparently uh, in Galatians, you read Galatians, uh, Paul talks about having to rebuke Peter, and it was not over circumcision. He, he 
gets in Peter's face and says, why are you not eating with the Gentiles? You're the guy that was over there in uh, um, the coastal town, not Copernicus, Caesarea, that coastal town where Cornelius is converted. There's nothing to do with uh, circumcision there. So Peter, though, he, he, he's been rebuked. And I, I think that this uh, episode is after that rebuke. So I think he's more sympathetic to the Gentiles now than he was earlier when he was siding with James and the circumcision party. And they had this view not about circumcision itself, but about eating with pagans. Okay? A little background information there. James is going to come up as well. Interesting. Peter and James both had to be rebuked by Paul. Peter says this. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did. Now, I, I bold the words that stand out to me. So if not circumcision, if it's not the law, what is it that brings faith to a person? The Holy Spirit is the regenerative agent. The Holy Spirit goes into someone, regenerates their heart. Now you're a new creation. You're reborn, born by the Spirit. And their hearts are cleansed by faith. So we see nothing about the law here. We see the Holy Spirit working through faith. Now the Pharisees would say, yeah, but that includes you still got to be a Jew to get those goodies. He goes on. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And that is the yoke of the law and its exclusivity. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Okay? A little bit about the grace of the Lord Jesus. Hope to not take too long here. The grace of the Lord Jesus is that this whole sacrificial system pointed to him. It was initiated at the point that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Provision was made for the tabernacle to replicate and symbolize the garden. God is holy. He's in communion with Adam. And the violation of that trust gets kicked out. They get kicked out. God makes a provision for them to access his person through the mercy seat, through blood sacrifices. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus satisfies the sacrificial system. It is by the blood of Jesus we are saved, not by the blood of animals who represented Jesus' blood until Jesus came. The disciples and the apostles get this. The Pharisees don't get it yet. I have this little symbol, and I encourage you to write this down. There's something about... When we, we talk about uh, the, simple symbol, the negative would be your, your uh, sin guilt. You are, the wages of sin is death, and you've got the death penalty looming over you. The wrath of God will be visited upon those who are in sin, right? The sacrificial system would atone for those sins by the blood of lambs and goats and bulls. With this, this ceremony of the high priest representing all the people, he had to make sacrifices for himself, then he'd make sacrifices for the people, and the blood of that sacrificial animal would be thrown on the mercy seat. The Lord had mercy on your people, and God promised to atone for that sin temporarily. So, the Christian, the new covenant is not simply to go from here to a neutrality. Ah, my sins have been forgiven. And then I fall back into sin again, and I need to keep approaching that neutrality so I'm not guilty before God. The new covenant is so much better. It is not that we, uh, we approach any kind of neutrality or sinlessness 
we get the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. It's like if you have a rap sheet of all the sins you've committed, and it just piles up. I used to once have a graphic of this. Huge. For me, it would be a huge pile of the things that I've said or thought or done. My goodness, if you want to convict me on those sins, I, I, I deserve eternal death. And then over here, you've got the righteous works of Christ. And the Father, as the judge, looks at the Son's righteousness, and they're imputed to my account. And they just drown it out. They smother it over. Because the Father looks to the imputed righteousness of His Son, who is sinless and a lawkeeper. Son of God, is God incarnate, circumcised on the eighth day, born to a woman under the law, satisfied every element of the law, did not come to negate or abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. That's what he did. He's the perfect, sinless high priest, and he brings his righteousness into the equation so that his sacrifice, his shed blood, is once for all applied to all the saints for all time. Hallelujah! So it's a new covenant. It's a better covenant. It's a covenant that allows Gentiles, any race, any gender, any past sins, any past sins are covered by the righteousness of Christ. The apostles and the, uh, the missionaries get this, the Pharisees don't get it. So let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews was written quite a bit later, so this is not something, um, this exposes the need for Scripture to be written. God simply chose to have a progressive revelation for the epistles and uh, these other books. But here's Hebrews written a little bit later. <clears throat> When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even though the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Really important that the Pharisees understand, we've got a new covenant happening here. You're not bound by the old covenant. It's the new covenant rules. And it's a good covenant. It goes on. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. This has implications for the historic church. This has implications for the Roman Catholic Mass. That if you're replicating a sacrifice week after week, why there no, doesn't need to be another sacrifice. The once for all sacrifice has been done. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Gentile believer, full assurance of faith. This doesn't have anything to do with circumcision the grace of God, the works of Christ. Well, I'll speed up a little bit here. That was all to get you into the understanding of what Peter had and what Peter had for the Gentiles, that these, these benefits of grace are uh, applied to the, the Gentiles. Well, Paul and Barnabas show up, and the text simply says that they talked about the signs and wonders. It's interesting how little is there, but then, of course, the rest of Acts is going to talk about it the works of Paul, and then the epistles are going to talk about Paul. So, certainly Paul here would talk about Cornelius. Certainly he would talk about, they left me for dead, I'm alive. Isn't that something? If you were an evangelist or a missionary, and your persecutors tried to kill you, and you survived, how about your fear level? 
your anxiety level would, would be upper. I mean, you might fear being attacked again, but you might figure, I'm hard to kill. I mean, it's just, I'm hard to kill. Uh, so they were giving testimony to the signs and wonders among the Gentiles, and then James quotes uh, the Old Testament to certify that the Gentiles, that's, that's part of the deal. The Gentiles are supposed to get this grace. Circumcision, the conclusion is not supported. Do you, you see that as well as I do? Because I could be wrong. But I, it's, a, it's a sound defeat for the circumcision party. Um, it's grace. Grace wins. Okay, another slight little side trip. Well, if not circumcision, which was the mark of the Jew, everybody had to do it. All the males. Interesting uh, covenant requirement because the ladies don't participate in it. The men do, the firstborn men, or all, all the men. If not circumcision, then what identifies a Christian? So this is going to also help us uh, get into the mind of a Pharisee because they're wondering, well, wait a minute, God wouldn't institute something with such particularity and with, you know, such consequences if it wasn't significant. It was significant. Does the new covenant have a new mark? Anybody think so? Acts 2. Peter says to the Jews, this uh, crowd gathered pre-Pentecost. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. They basically said, you killed, you killed the Messiah. And then, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we see a couple of elements here. Rebirth by the Holy Spirit, and what's the marking word in this? Baptism. We see baptism in the New Covenant replacing circumcision. Don't believe me? Well, let's look at that. When Peter went to Cornelius and he got the vision, it's okay to eat with these people. Later on, he's going to fudge on that. But at the time, feel free to eat anything. And so, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So, baptism. Skipping ahead, Sam told me that he, you guys, uh, this church has already been through... Uh, Acts 16, so he's not going to preach through it. So it's fair game for me to just jump ahead there and not take it. When uh, Paul and Silas are in the jail, and the, the jailer wants to commit suicide because his prisoners have gotten away, no, no, no. And, and so then he said, what must they do to be saved? <clears throat> Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So we see, it's required to be circumcised here, right? Be circumcised and you... No, circumcision is not there. Belief is. Belief followed by baptism. And that's where we would get the doctrine of believers' baptism. You don't baptize and think that the water somehow miraculously does the job of regeneration. Some cults and some practices of the ancient Roman church believe in regenerative baptism. But uh, that would be another discussion. But generally, it's believer baptism that the Holy Spirit regenerates you. Baptism is an external act that represents the internal transformation. And then baptism itself is the immersion in water representing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I mentioned that and have to move on, but I hope for those of you who are Christians and are not baptized to consider this ordinance. When I was a young Christian, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about the law. I don't know anything about Scripture. I wasn't baptized. I'm starting to read through the Scriptures. I'm starting to read through stuff. I don't remember Christianity that deserves a verdict, reasons to believe. I was reading theology, but I didn't read expositions on baptism at the time. And one of the elders in the church said, you should be baptized. 
And at the time, I just went along with the custom and tradition. Now I have a theology behind it. And I highly recommend, if you're a member of the church, show it. Show it by your baptism. Okay, so that was kind of a, a side trip because baptism replaces circumcision. Spotting legalists, back to our theme of legalism. How do you spot them? Although we gave them no instructions is one sign. They went out from them without being deputized, ordained, or even asked to go, right? They just, of their own uh, intentions, they go out and start teaching something that the elders and apostles don't even agree with. So when people show up, it's fair game. So uh, what seminary did you go to, or what church ordained you, or what Bible are you using, right? It's fair game to ask. And in contrast, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men to send out. And we send Paul and Barnabas. And these men have a track record of sacrificing for the sake of the gospel even. This is from Matthew, what Jesus said. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. There will always be false prophets, false teachers. I could be one of them. And I, want, I encourage you to think, well, how would, if you don't think I am, why not? And could I be? What are the protections that the church has against false teaching? Just because you teach something and make an error in it, and I, that usually happens to me. I usually make some kind of an error, say something wrong, and tell a bad joke. That doesn't make me a false teacher that is in a wolf, a ravenous wolf. Because my desire, I would say to you, is to glorify God through the preaching of his word. But I'm still going to make mistakes. However, the ravenous wolves, they're not so much connected. They don't have the spirit operating in them as their, their, their governor. They got the flesh operating in them. But they look like Christians. It's going to be, it's, it's the wheat and the tares issue, right? You're going to have the tares with you. It's going to happen. And there will always be false uh, teachers with us. Here's the question, though. Is it I? Am I teaching what is false? Check, you know, hang out with a bunch of people who can also check me. I really appreciate an elder-run church where when, when you preach, you're accountable. Because if I say something wrong, I'm accountable for what I said. And then, could I be wrong? Because sometimes we take a position, and it may be a narrow position. It's not false, but it's narrow. It's an improper fixation on a particular law, like alcohol or tattoos, or the kind of music you listen to, or modesty and apparel. And it just goes on and on. And we need to learn to live with one another with this diversity of cultural opinions. Okay, so back to our story. They write this letter of accommodation. Now, I gave it that label. It's interesting to me that they're accommodating the legalists. <laughs> All right? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. You gotta make sure the Holy Spirit, it seemed good to them. They're praying, the Holy Spirit's communicating with them, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. The requirements are kind of remarkable. What has been sacrificed to idols and from blood? Let's see if I had any pictures. Oh, yes. Why would they have three ceremonial implications and one universal moral implication? Why aren't they all moral? Why are they even accommodating these people? Because Paul's later going to write, food sacrificed to idols is nothing. Nothing. But here, at this time, the progressive revelation of Scripture, for some reason, these guys are agreeing we're going to accommodate this diversity, 
Okay, so I put this up again. We got the Gentile converts. They don't, they're not familiar with these dietary laws so much. They need to be informed. And you got the Pharisees that are inflexible with the dietary laws. And it looks like this conclusion, once they bring it back, okay, then they, they decide to write this letter, and then it looks good. And then they take it back to Antioch. Everybody rejoices. Happy ending. It's not over because the epistles are all going to be written. And most of the epistles are written to a problem. Ephesians not such a problem, but many of them are problem-solving revelations. It's marvelous how God works that way. There are ditches on either side of the road. What time am I supposed to be done? Matt? And 11.30ish. Six minutes. Okay, this is kind of a principle thing. If this is helpful, take a picture of it. Legalism. I try to sum up, what is legalism? What is this problem that's always in the church? It's been persisting the church forever. I'm going to define it as it's an improper fixation with rules and codes. But it really is the power, the desire to have the power of the flesh to pridefully control. Now, it can be theological. We've got to do it this way. It's always been done this way. That's what the, more, the, the Old Testament code said. But it can also, legalism can drift into other elements. Areas. You know, you want to protect the environment, you could become a legalist about what can and can't be done in your forests. And so, how do we know? Some people simply want control. And so I think the Pharisees wanted control. Ultimately, they're trying to control God. It's like, God, look, the dill, the cumin. We've tied so meticulously, you gotta like us. You gotta like us. It's the flesh, it's trifle flesh. This is a, the perspective that is bound by the rules, and I put in parentheses, you take God's good rules, and then you subject them to a prideful motive, and they become the extra-biblical rules of man. Watch out for that. Which often is dogmatic and inflexible. Um, you know, I don't want to stir up too much, but here's an example. Talk to me later. Um, some people have come to churches that I've been in leadership over. With the translation you use John. You know there's only one authorized translation? And then they would cite a particular translation, the only English translation authorized by God. And they become very contentious. And you know, the fact that I'm using an ESV, which I think is an excellent translation of the NASB or all kinds of other good English translations, somehow they're applying an extra biblical standard of revelation to an English version by an English king in the 1400s. And it's just, how do you steer them out of that? So sometimes it becomes dogmatic and flexible, and it misunderstands the grace of God to translate into different languages. Because that's an expression of grace as well, to communicate with the Gentile nations. The Jews in Scripture represent those who are attached to this law, this tradition. The other ditch, and I contend there's a little bit of legalism in everybody, it's certainly true of me, and a little bit of license. We're prone to this. License is the power of the flesh for impulsive desire. And I want it. It must be good. If I want it, it's got to be good. And I, let me find a way to justify it being good. And this is where we are unbound by law. Licentiousness is we have the license. We have the freedom to not be bound by laws. I do what I want with whom I want. It is permissive of sin. And it is a misunderstanding of grace. You know, when Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Should I sin more? Never. And so we have these two ditches we can drift into. We can say, oh, I can do anything I want. I can have, I, I might contest the Baptist position, so I can drink. But then I can get drunk too. So, you know, we've got 
we have, we have this spectrum, and what's in the middle? I offer this. Lord loving liberty. That we should not be too quick to let people enslave us by rules or permissions, either way. That when we love the Lord, Lord, what would you have me do? How would you have me live? The power of the Spirit to sanctify the flesh, to glorify God, and enjoy Him forever. For those people who have any kind of Presbyterian background or you know, it's a Westminster Confession, I think it rocks, frankly. That our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's, that's awesome. So there are ditches on either side, and we're going to deal with this throughout the, the age of the church age until Christ returns. We're going to deal with legalists, and we're going to deal with people that decide, no, no, this is fine for us, and there'll be two permissions of sin. I want to share this with you. The progressive problem-solving revelation of New Testament Scripture. What we see in Acts 15 settles a dispute temporarily. It's an accommodation. You Gentile converts need to get along with you Pharisee converts and not stir each other up too much. It's really a, a picture of a gracious accommodation, but it's going to require lots more debate and lots more epistles being written. So here's what Paul, who's probably writing the letters to the Galatian at the very time that he's traveling from Antioch, he's working on this. Like this is his dissertation. I'm studying this issue, and here's what he says to the Galatian church. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in your freedom. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say that to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law, the whole ceremonial law. You are severed from Christ, you who would, justi would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Paul pulls no conscience. No punches here. It is grace. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. He writes also, oh, circumcision is addressed in Galatians 6, Philippians 3, Colossians 2, Titus 1. This is an ongoing issue. They're called the Judaizers, the mutilators of the flesh. They just keep coming. They keep coming. And, and yeah, think about this, though. If they had not kept coming after Paul in his ministry, every time Paul would plant a church, here come the Judaizers. No, this is the way it's done. No, this is the way it's done. This is the way we've always done it. This is what the law says. Then Paul would not have written the corrective letter that we get today thousands of years later that show us how to live. It's an expression of grace. Problem-solving progressive scripture. He also responds to the universal, you know, that uh, so don't eat the strangled, the blood, uh, sacrifice to idols, animals, and then avoid sexual immorality. Paul will write about these issues as well in Thessalonians. For this is the will of God for those of you who want to know what's God's will for me. Here, here it is. This is the will of God, your sanctification. How are you sanctified? That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We have in the dishes, right, self-righteousness over here, the Judaizers, moral license over here on the part of the Gentiles. In some ways, they don't know any better. In some ways, once they know better, they show themselves to be false teachers and wolves. So Paul will address that. 
And then in Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks, to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So this is going to play out through all of the epistles. My goodness, Romans between the Gentiles and the Roman uh, and the, uh, the Jewish believers, just trying to get the church to get along is difficult. Oh, I'm done. But I want you to think about legalism in the church and throughout history. And I'm going to give you a little bit of time to get together and consider these questions. They're up on the screen. And uh, you have my permission. If you come today with a need, it could be something traumatic in your life, and you don't want to talk about legalism, you're free to ask for a prayer request um, and share that. that. That's fine. So I trust that the Holy Spirit uh, will look over the congregation. It's a safe playground, so the needs of the body are often met by the gifts of the body. You have my permission to not talk about these, but if you want to stay on task, John Sled, the teacher, what must the person do to be saved? Do you have an answer to that? And then how can you distinguish obedience to Scripture from legalism? What is your experience in successfully dealing with legalism? I will share one more quick little thing. I was an elder in another church, and I found myself with a minority opinion on an issue. I'll even tell you what the issue was. I won't tell you what the church was. And I was, I was clinging to the absolutist position on divorce and remarriage and qualifying for elder. And I was looking at John Piper's argument that, I won't even go into the details, but I was taking a position and I was in the minority and the rest of the brothers felt like that I was having uh, an inappropriate or improper fixation to the code of the law. And I basically just yield to the majority because they're godly brothers. And sometimes we do that. And uh, I would say that it, since that time, I'm still attracted the scriptures support my position, but grace in the body sometimes makes you more diplomatic and gracious and accommodating. So that I step back from my position a little bit, even though, does that make sense? You still favor it, but you realize you're going to be alone. It's you and your position, and you could be alone. And uh, talk to me about that if you're interested in that. But so many times... Um, we sacrifice relationship for what we believe is right and true, and we're just not that smart. We're not omniscient. We just don't know all the details of the circumstance to know a person's heart and how they fit into that situation. So that, that's my example of distinguishing obedience from legalism. And then what is your experience in successfully dealing with legalism? Let me pray, and you get to talk, and I'll break you out of your groups, and we'll close. I'll give you about five, ten minutes to talk. Lord. Thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and look at the situation in Acts, how legalists would creep in and teach and uh, trouble the minds of believers who tasted freedom. And they weren't, they weren't tempted to sin, but they, they, they also were not uh, bound to run, jump through these hoops and become a Jew before they could become a Christian. And uh, so I thank you for this opportunity to go through this text. And I pray that you bless our conversation now as we continue to negotiate legalism and grace in the church. I ask in the name of